Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. What I talked about on Easter was uh, that Jesus' life is available here and now, that he didn't come just to give us life after death. But what you see time and time again in the New Testament is Jesus comes to bring you life before death. And that his life is marked by abundance and wholeness and peace. And I, I, we attempted to put him on display. And I think the team did an amazing job. And, and so today I thought we could follow up with last week's Sunday sermon. Um, and really, what does it look like now uh, to actually have this abundant life that Jesus offers? Because so many people raise their hand saying, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Um, and, and then we experience like the highlight of Easter and resurrection. But then... Monday comes, right? And, and you know, in the church calendar, this time of year where you, you lead up to the resurrection, that season's called Lent. And then it's Easter Sunday, it's Resurrection Sunday. And then there's this time, um, and then you get to Pentecost 50 days after Easter. Um, but the time between resurrection and Pentecost is called ordinary time. And how many of you live your life in ordinary time? <laughs> I do. And, and I, I was just talking to a friend last night, actually. Um, I was texting a group of guys, and we were just talking about how um, it's, it's difficult in, when you have kids and, a, and you own a business and you have chores and responsibilities. It's difficult to keep your passion for Jesus alive, let alone any other type of passion. Um, and so, so the question is then, if, if, if truly Jesus comes to bring life, and life marked by power and wholeness and peace and joy and all these amazing things, how do you ex- experience it? How do you sustain it? Is that, is that a, a reasonable question to ask? That's, that's what I was thinking this morning of talking through this a little bit. And this, this talk, I want to I answer a question, which it's simply this question. How... Um, what is it? What's the question, actually? I need a good thing I have my notes today. What does it mean? It's a great question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus today? Because I think in the, if we answer that question, we can actually um, define how to experience the life that he offers here and now and how we can sustain it. And so in the few short, short minutes that we have together, I thought I would answer that question. So if you have a Bible, go to the book of Mark. We'll go, we'll go to the book of Mark. I'm gonna frame this conversation and this question. And um, I'm, I'm borrowing some stuff from a friend. And if you, if you don't know this yet in the church world, everything's like robbed, stolen. Everyone's stealing from each other. There's no original idea. Um, and my friend didn't want me to even mention it, but John Mark Comer from Portland, my friend who leads a church called Bridgetown, and we're really good friends. He's been here a bunch. He'll be back again. He's been doing some amazing stuff on what it means to be a f- disciple of Jesus. And um, his stuff has been profound. It's impacted my life. And so I'm actually going to st- take a lot of what he's been working on and launch a series in the fall and into the new year, um, starting this coming fall. But I thought I would just kind of tease you with some of the stuff that starts by answering this question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Does that sound good? 1115, I love you already. You're already giving me more feedback, more positive affirmation and love, more amens, hallelujahs. Um, And if I was Suresh Kumar, if you were here for that, he expects hallelujahs. You know what I'm saying? Our friend from India. Um, But anyways, let me pray. And then we'll just continue and we'll answer this question this morning. Jesus, we thank you, God. Um, We thank you so much for the life that you've given us. 
just the grace you've bestowed on us. We just want to be closer to you. We want to learn how to live this life well and do it in the way that you intended it to be. And I, I just thank you so much for the grace you've given me and this church and uh, that we're not, we're not trying to, to, to do anything other than be obedient to you. We're trying to get close to you and, and live as intentional as possible to the things that you say. And so I pray even now as we open up your word, as we maybe redefine what it means to be a follower, <clears throat> that we would just be open to this new change and that you would release the, these saints into ministry in your name. Amen. All right. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus today? Or the question really is, what does it mean to be a disciple? So uh, before the, a disciple of Jesus, before we go and define what, what, what that means to be a follower, let's just talk about who Jesus is. Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, and if you open up the Bible, what you'll see is you'll see lots of things. Jesus was called the Messiah, or, which means the Christ, the anointed one, or the long-awaited king of Israel. He was called the son of God. He was the incarnation of the creator of the universe. But if you open up your Bible, or if you were living back in the first century and showed up to a local synagogue, and Jesus was there teaching, you would have referred to him as a rabbi. Because that's what he would have been seen in the first, first century as he was ministering in the first century context. A rabbi was a teacher, a teacher who would travel around from town to town teaching his yoke. This is what was referred to as his teachings of his perspective and paradigm of the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So uh, a rabbi was a common teacher in the first century and before and after, and his teachings, his view or interpretation of the Old Testament was referred to as his yoke, and his job was to spread his yoke to everyone through discipleship. And so if you read the Bible, what you'll see is over 90 different times people refer to Jesus. And when they refer to him, up or upwards of the time they refer to him is 60 of those, uh, they call him rabbi. Excuse me, let me say that again. <laughs> of the 90 times people talk to Jesus in the Gospels, upwards of 60 of those refer to him as a rabbi or a teacher. And this has all sorts of implications for us. It has all sorts of implications for what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower. And when I say follower, I don't mean like follow him on Instagram or Facebook or social media, like like his posts here and there. Like it had radical implications back then and it has even more radical, radical implications because of the contrast of what it means to believe in Christ or belong to a church versus what it meant to follow him in the first century. Okay, so Mark chapter one, we're gonna read four scriptures together, <clears throat> four different texts. Mark one, verse 16. Um, uh, as, verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his bro brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles up in the front, or you can download an app. I don't hear many pages turning, um, so I'll assume you're all on your device, which is fine. That's cool. That's great. Oh, it's on the same page. You're right. I, you're right. It's on the same page. <laughs> True that, sister. Oh, touche. Once again, back to the text. Once again, 
Grace and peace to you. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and followed him. Mark chapter three, verse 13. No, 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 okay, Mark chapter three, verse 13. Jesus went up to a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority over the demons. And then he names the 12. And then Mark chapter eight, one more verse. Thank you for those loud turns. Appreciate it. I feel so, I feel like we're on the same page now. Oh, that was, that was really bad. <clears throat> I didn't mean it that way either. That's so funny. Verse 34. Um, this is, a, this is a, a later on and basically halfway through Mark's gospel. It's a turning point for discipleship. And he says, verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or can anyone give an exchange for their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So these are the texts that Jesus kind of, um, that Mark uses to kind of frame discipleship. What's the theme? Follow, follow me. You see it over and over again, Jesus calls them and the, bless you, uh, calls them and, uh, and people leave everything. They leave their nets. They leave their tax collector booth. They pick up their cross and they follow Jesus. Jesus didn't say, believe in me and you'll go somewhere else when you die. That's not the message of Jesus. It wasn't the message that the gospel writers wanted to leave behind as we talk about what's the narrative of Christ like. It was come, follow me with your whole life. And one of the things you have to evaluate is if you want to follow me, you will have to pick up your cross and leave everything else to be my disciple. Disciple is the key word here. <clears throat> In Hebrew, it's Talmudim. And it means student, but it doesn't mean student like, hey, go to hear a lecture, pull out your laptop and take notes and leave. That's not what a student was in the first century. The best word to describe the meaning of a disciple is the word apprentice. Apprentice. That you were, uh, uh, if you were a follower of a rabbi, you would apprentice that rabbi. Now stay with me just for a few moments. I want to talk about the first century context for discipleship. And then we'll come back to today. What does it mean to follow Jesus today? But for us to understand how we sustain life in the kingdom now, how do we sustain this abundant life? We have to understand what it means to be a follower of a disciple of Jesus. And I think, I think not to be overly critical, we've missed this in the church. We've for so long talked about following Jesus as believing the right things about God, which is important, but it has nothing to do with our life. And what you see in the scriptures is discipleship. It has something to do with following Jesus with our whole life. So discipleship in the first century wasn't invented by Jesus. There were rabbis before him and after that collected disciples along the way. Rabbi Hillel, a famous Jewish rabbi, had 70 disciples. Rabbi Akiva, another famous Jewish rabbi, had five disciples, yet thousands of followers. Um, Socrates had famous disciples. Plato was one of those disciples. Plato was a, a <clears throat> has shaped more of Western culture 
than Jesus in some ways. I, and I would, not more, but roughly a lot of the same. His perspective on lots of things, including theology in the Christian world, has been influenced by Plato. We have a more Platonic view than a Hebrew view of spiritual things. Because of the distance we have between the spiritual things and the physical realm, that's a Greek philosophical view. Uh, in the Hebrew mindset, everything's the same. There is no word for spiritual because that would, that would mean that something's not spiritual. Everything's spiritual. That's a Hebrew perspective. Plato was a disciple of Socrates. So we have uh, discipleship was going. It was a, a way of instruction and teaching way before Jesus comes onto the scene. And when Jesus comes onto the scene as a young rabbi, <clears throat> discipleship was the apex of the Jewish education system. Now, this is so important to understand what Jesus does in the Gospels. So in the first century, if you grew up as a Jewish boy or girl, you would go to a house of book, which was basically grade school for every Jewish boy and girl. And there from the ages of basically three or two to 12-ish, you would study the, the first five books of the Old Testament along with basic math and basic education stuff. So you would be educated in the local synagogue by a teacher and you would study the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You would basically have that memorized. It was an oral tradition culture. So you'd have that memorized. And most, almost everyone stopped education at the age of 11 or 12. Women, you would get betrothed and married off at the age of 12. Boys would go and learn the family uh, field. So if you were, your dad was a carpenter, you would apprentice your father and become a carpenter, which is why Jesus was a carpenter or a stonemason, you can argue. If, you were, if your dad was a fisherman, you'd become a fisherman. And so most kids would stop the education at the age of 12, and then you'd go on into the rest of your life and live your life in society. But the best of the best would continue their education. And they would go into the house of learning. And from ages 12 to 14, the best of the best of the best would go into the next level of education where they would be trained by a paid professional. And they would study the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. They would memorize the Old Testament. They would begin to learn the oral tradition and the, the teachings of the rabbis and begin to learn the Midrash where they would study um, the, the kind of the greater literature, you could say, of the Jewish religion. Now, after that, at the age of 14, most kids stopped their education. But if you were the best of the best of the best, you would want to go into the next level of education, which was the Talmudim. You'd become a disciple of a rabbi. Only the elite got to do this. And what you would do is you'd petition to the rabbi and say, I want to study under you. I want to be your disciple. And then the rabbi would interview you and ask all sorts of questions and grill you on whether or not you knew enough, if you were smart enough, if you knew various interpretations of old Midrash or Genesis. They would just, they would want to know if you had what it took to be their disciple. They wanted to know if you could become like them, if you could know what they knew. And only the best of the best would be selected. And if you manage to get selected and go through the interview process and the, the rabbi believed that you had what it took, he would say, come follow me. And then you would leave your family, you would leave your friends, you would leave your life and follow that rabbi until you were trained to do what he did. So this is the first century context. And there were three goals of being a disciple in the first century. These were the three goals. The first was to be with your rabbi. So the way that this was taught was more caught. 
You weren't just taught the right things. You needed to spend time with your rabbi. You, you read about all sorts of stories of Rabbi Akiva's disciples literally following their, his rabbi into the restroom to make sure that they didn't miss anything. This is the mindset of first century Jewish education that you needed to be with him. You needed to see how he ate, how he slept, how he conversated, how he had meals and how he taught and how he walked along the road. The first task of being a disciple was just to be around the rabbi all the time, 24-7. The second goal of being a disciple in the first century was to be like or to become like your rabbi, to become like your rabbi. You didn't just want to be around him. You wanted to become like him. So what you saw in first century Jewish education was disciples would take on the traits of their rabbi. They would begin to speak with the same intonation. They would begin to mimic him, copy him. They would do the things that he did. They would read the Torah the way they read the Torah. They would speak the way that their rabbi spoke. They, uh, they wanted to imitate. They would even dress like them, their style, their clothing, their hair. They would copy their rabbi because they wanted to become like their rabbi. If you follow the teachings of Jesus, he says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So first century discipleship. First was to be with your rabbi. Second, to become like your rabbi. And the third and final thing that you need to do is to do what your rabbi did, to do what he did. This is the goal. The whole point is to carry the yoke of your rabbi into the world without your rabbi. So Jesus, in Mark chapter three, he calls his disciples to what? To be with him. And then he sends them out to preach and have authority over demons, which to preach and have authority over demons is Mark's shorthand of saying to do what Jesus did. Everything he did. That's the goal and the task of being a follower of Jesus in the first century. So Matthew, at the end of the gospel, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Believe right things about me. Have some cool conversations around coffee about your sin. Post a picture of it. Read your Bible app occasionally. Get the Jesus Calling book. I love Jesus Calling, by the way. I'm not dead. I keep saying that. I just use it as like the perfect illustration of like how we can just read one scripture, have a reflection, and think that's my discipleship. What Jesus says is actually all authority on heaven in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and do what I've been doing. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Teach them everything I've commanded you and baptize them in the Trinitarian reality. I'm with you to the ends of the age. Good luck. How could he do that? He didn't do that because he was teaching them just the right things to believe. He lived life with them and entrusted the spirit to empower his life in them wherever they went because that was the form of education. It was discipleship. It wasn't just belief. It was following Jesus with everything. Now that was 20, that was first century. Let's go to the 21st century. Let's answer the question. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus today in Long Beach? The first thing it means is to be with Jesus. The first task is to be with Jesus. How do you follow Jesus today? You are to be with him. This is the most important goal of our, of our apprenticeship to Jesus, to spend every waking moment with our rabbi. Now, we don't have his physical body here, his physical life. We can't watch him eat. We can't have a conversation like we could you and I right now. So how do we do that? Well, uh, we're gonna teach on this in the fall, but the shorthand is through our relationship with the spirit. 
Our first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in constant state of awareness and connection to the Spirit. So we learn how to be filled with the Spirit and have a relationship with our rabbi through the power of his Holy Spirit. For those of you that raised your hand on Sunday and said, I want to begin my life with Jesus. I want to learn how to follow him. This is the most important thing I can teach you. It's how to open yourself up to the Spirit of God and hear him in your life. To be in your business meetings and all of a sudden realize it's been a while since I've been aware of the presence of God. And just in the meeting, not having to get crazy, close your eyes and hold your hands up, but just posture your hearts and mind in a way that you're like, I, Lord, I know you've been here. I'm now here. Make me aware of your presence. Brothers and sisters, do you see how profound this is? This is, if you as followers, this is what I want. If you could begin to learn to be with Jesus in and out of season. To, to be filled with his presence, to be people marked by his presence and to learn to hear his voice in your everyday ordinary life. Learn to know when it's his voice and not your voice or a voice of an influential person in your life or someone that's hurt you in your life or the voice of the enemy, but the voice of Jesus. If you can learn to hear his voice and obey it, there will be a movement of extraordinary kind. This is, this is what the church is designed to be. The place where the presence of God is in our midst, where people will say, I want to be like them, not because of what we look like, not because of all the things that are going on, but because there's a sense that God's here and we want to be near it. But the only way that happens is if you take responsibility for your discipleship. Discipleship is not coming and getting fed on Sundays. It's feasting on Monday mornings in the word. It's learning to be with him in and out of season, learning to trust him, learning to walk when you're on that run to just allow Jesus to be on the run with you. Last week, I, I just literally prepared my sermon by running the boardwalk, which is beautiful. So I was just like up and down the boardwalk, preparing the sermon, getting Jesus, and just learning a different way to walk with Jesus. Some of you need to have the most important meetings. You need to do it in partnership with Jesus. He's longing to be with you. So we learn to be in a constant, constant state of connection and awareness. Dallas Willard says this, and I, this is a, a profound way of thinking about it, and he's clearly a genius, or was. He says, the first and most basic thing we can do and must do is to keep, is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may, uh, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, like Netflix, um, which is what God's speaking to me about lately. Um, but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken He's so gracious. And a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we keep taking, take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. Oh, right? I could just say that and we're like, all right, we're on our way. That's why I have to quote him. I can't paraphrase that. But basically he's saying part of learning to be with him is practice. And so what does that mean? Well, we learn through spiritual disciplines like solitude and silence and Sabbath. I said this in the first, cent uh, first century. I said this in the first century, in the first service. Uh, I said, I think that Sabbath is probably the, one of the most important 
spiritual disciplines we can practice as a community because of how busy uh, and how focused our, our culture is on producing. And I just invite you once a week to, to strip away all work and chores, all social media, all devices, and, and all, all the screens in your house to learn to rest in God. Play Go surf if you surf. Take up a hobby with your spouse. Do it with your family and learn, share meals with friends. Go to the park and rest once a week so that you remember that we're not products of what we produce. We're not, we're not slaves anymore. We've been freed and we're made in the image of the creator. These disciplines and spiritual practices form our soul over a lifetime and they teach us how to be with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, read scripture every day. I mean, we, yeah, I'm getting hallelujahs. Yes, read scripture. Every, I have had the sweetest devotions lately, quiet times. And I invited a bunch of our leaders to read the New Testament in 60 days. So there's a bunch of us. We just got through Matthew today. We're starting Mark. So if you want to join, it's basically four chapters of the New Testament. And it's, it's been so amazing just to be in a community that's reading the scripture together. It's learning how to be, be with Jesus in a new way. And I just invite you, develop practices because this is everything. Learn to practice <clears throat> to be in the presence of Jesus. The second thing, how do we follow Jesus today? How do we be a follower of Jesus? The second thing I want to invite you to do is to become like Jesus. And the, the, the word for this, this is the goal. It's sanctification. And this is, you know, an old, old word that's been used in the church for thousands of years. The, the sexier word is spiritual formation. Um, <clears throat> have you heard of this phrase before, spiritual formation? It's basically, as in the Christian tradition, is the process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in his easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus as our teacher. You see, brothers and sisters, um, I think one of the problems with the church has been, uh, we've said, we've had two extremes in many ways where it's like, if we just read the Bible, then we'll experience transformation. Or in charismatic circles, if you just keep keep getting zapped by the Holy Spirit, (laughs) you you know, and you'll, you'll you'll be transformed. And the reality is that that's not true, right? So how is it that you keep getting zapped, but your your anger toward your spouse has not gotten better over the years? So what does it mean to become like Jesus? Well, I I, I just think it's this simple. We're gonna live for eternity. Do you know this? Like you'll be around a million years from now. And this short life that we get is like this much on this stage. And we're to live in this reality and we'll we'll grow for all of eternity because eternity is dynamic. It's not static. We'll continue to grow. So what we learn now in this life is to to practice the the habits of Jesus that even though they're unintentional, at first they become intentional and they become um, second nature over time, but to develop like the Galatians 5, fruit of the spirit, where over a lifetime, we, we should as followers of Jesus become more patient and more kind and more gentle and filled with self-control, full of love and joy and all the fruits of the Spirit. And I think this is what Jesus intended discipleship to look like, that if you've been following Jesus for 10 years, that when you started, your life looked a certain way, but over time, it's being shaped into Christ-likeness so that 10 years from now, you will respond in situations more naturally like Jesus would if he was in those situations than you would 10 years ago. Does that make sense? And this is what it means to be a follower, to become like Jesus. And I want so desperately for my life to to respond in situations in the way that Jesus would respond. And I read this Sermon on the Mount 
been meditating on this all year since January. And I, try, I said I was going to try to memorize it. I, I canceled that. That was way too hard. Um, but if you did, great. Good job. Because um, <clears throat> I got through the Beatitudes and I was like, yep, that's about it. And, uh, but I've been reading them and soaking myself. And Jesus, I believe this is the standard for kingdom life, is this Sermon on the Mount. That we are to love appropriately well like Jesus, per- perfectly well. We are to have anger um, managed appropriately, that we respond to anger in appropriate ways. Uh, and, and we are to look at women and men in ways that are not full of lust. And we all give and all this stuff. And I believe that's for us. And that's my prayer that I, can, that I could be on the four or five without that anger. I want that so bad. Or at the traffic circle. Because there are people that need to learn how to go through the traffic circle. Can I get an Amen. Lord Jesus, help us. Come quickly, Jesus, please. I'm literally like, I don't know why. I just, it's not a stop sign and it's not a light. And if there's cars just a little bit away, you can speed up and go down the traffic circle. Can I get a hallelujah for the traffic? All right. Shape. And here's the truth. You're becoming, you're being shaped by something. So, so you're, you're a disciple of someone or something. Culture, we talked about this in, in the fall, last, last fall, that we're being shaped by our culture, by our friendships, by the narratives we've believed and adopted over the years. So the question is, are you being shaped by Jesus or something else? Because I can be shaped by what people think of me. I can be shaped by what culture says about me. I can be shaped by the media that I, I, I listen to, I watch, I read, by the music that I listen to. All those things shape the way we live. The question is, are you being shaped towards Christ-likeness or to something else? And that's, that's the question that I, I invite you to think. Are you a follower of Jesus who is becoming like Jesus? Are you being with Jesus? And then the last thing, and this is probably, and I'll just, before I go to that, the this, this second area, I think most of the Western discipleship has been here. Most of Western discipleship, following Jesus means to be a moral person. And so most of our discipleship groups are focusing on our sin. Am I right? It's like sin management. Basically, you think discipleship, most people think I get in a group with a few guys and we talk about our issues. We might read the Bible. We pray for each other and we just do this for the rest of our life. Just talking about our issues until one day maybe I don't struggle with that and then, but I still hang out with the same people that are struggling with the same issues. Versus Jesus's expectation, which is, gets us to point three, which is how do we be a disciple today? One of the ways we do that is by doing what Jesus did. And there's a list And the list is not for your personality type. The list is what Jesus expects of every follower, including children. I'm not raising my son to to think that he's gonna participate in a gathering on Sundays, that that's what Christ wants him to be. I'm raising, I'm training my son as a three and a half year old to know that he can bring life wherever he goes. That when he gets to school, he will influence school. And this is my prayer. I don't know if he's gonna be able to do it. This is what I'm training him to do though with the rhythms of our family, the why we read scripture together, why we take Sabbath, why we have hospitality, why we show up to church when, even though we have other things going on, why um, as a family we give financially to all these causes and we pray for our friends that are missionaries. Why do we go downtown and walk the streets and pray when we could go to the beach some days? We, we're training our kid right now and I'll have another son soon. We're training him in, to be a warrior in the kingdom of God. But Jesus expects that you will become like him, you will be with him, and you'll do what he did. Here's a category. 
various categories of Jesus' work. He's expecting you to preach the gospel, teach the way, heal the sick, cast out demons, eat and drink with people that are far from God, to do justice. You're gonna be part of peacemaking. You're praying, you're prophesying, you're standing up to religious and political corruption and you're making other disciples. This is what Jesus did in the scripture. The invitation is to do that in your everyday ordinary life. It's not pick and choose what feels right for your personality makeup. Am I right? Well, I was just having this conversation. You know, someone's like, well, uh, you know, I don't really know how to, I don't really share my face. I, I feel like that's for other people that are other gifted. We're all part of a body, so I don't really need to share my faith. Like, no, Jesus actually wants everyone to evangelize. And, and it's, you don't grad, you're, you don't just like all of a sudden graduate, get paid by a church, and then you, you become the evangelist. No, no, no. As a student, as a stay-at-home mom, as a business owner, as a paid professional in the industry of church, you're sharing your life, you're doing what Jesus did. This is what Jesus expected of his followers. You see, this is the invitation, is to become a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice, and to, if you want that abundant life, well, let me just say, you have to follow Jesus with your whole life. It's not just an addition. It's not just an accessory. It's not just this thing that you do once in a while. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used 268 times. And I think this is where, the, where we kind of messed it up in the church. And we'll be responsible. I'll take ownership. And as I, as I critique our church, the American church, it's self-critique because I'm a part of the problem. Um, and I think what's happened is we've made Jesus in our own image. Rather than looking at him in the New Testament and saying, let's, let's build this thing around what he teaches us. And so we've built a consumer-oriented, narcissistic, comfort-seeking, and security-driven social club, and we call it church. Well, should I say it one more time? Or, or is it two? Okay, I'll say it. I said it three times in the other service, so I'll do it one more time. We've created a consumer-oriented, narcissistic, comfort-seeking, and security-driven social club. And we call it church. But, and we can attend it, we can shop it, we can leave it. And I think we, we, make, Christi- we make discipleship to Jesus ab- about our lives first. It's like, we think that we're the most important person in our life, and actually Jesus is. And so we think our life with Jesus becomes, in that world, becomes about our comfort, our preferences, our dreams, our personality types. And so we go to these communities and we judge the worship. We criticize the speaker. We, we, we come saying, I want it to be a certain way or I, I, I want, I, it's about my preferences rather than saying, no, everything is about the mission of Jesus moving forward. Everything is about, Paul says, I become everything to everyone to win some. What's he saying? Uh, everything is about Jesus' mission. My, I won't eat certain foods if it causes my brother to stumble. That's what Jesus, that's what Paul says, not Jesus. And we've messed it up because we've made it about believing the right things and going someplace else when we die rather than saying, no, this is about your whole life being reoriented around your confession that Jesus is Lord. He wants to train you to be like him, to be with him and do what he did. And when you read the New Testament, this is what's so profound. They actually did it. What's so profound is they actually, they, they, they rearranged their relationships 
based on their followership to Jesus. He's, who are my mother and my brother and my father and my sisters? You are, because we're on mission together. And if we're brothers and sisters and you're in need, I have to give, because I can't. No, I can't let you suffer if you're my brother in Christ. Resources were radically reallocated to those that didn't have enough. They sold, they're like, oh, I have all this stuff here. Um, I, I have pl- I'm gonna share, because you don't have enough. I mean, that's radical. They, it wasn't about how it fit into the schedule. Their schedules were realigned to Jesus and the kingdom. They were people marked by power. They wasn't like, oh, maybe we'll pray today. No, God says in his word, we're supposed to pray for the sick. Let's go at it. Let us be the ones that fail miserably trying to see God be faithful to his promises. They're not our promise, they're his promises. And this is what we're after. You want that life. You want the life of Jesus. You have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And Mark, throughout his gospel, will contrast two different groups. And this is the question in the gospel of Mark. There's a harsh divide. Will you be the face of the crowd, which eventually crucifies the Messiah? Or will you be a disciple? Will you be the face of the crowd chanting one day, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And the next day, crucify, crucify, crucify. Or will you be a disciple who through suffering, through joy, through persecution, through life and love and all the other stuff learn to be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what he did. Brothers and sisters, if you're checking us out, we're so glad you're here, but we're moving this way. And it's not gonna be easy because it's gonna take us as a community being responsible for our spirituality and our discipleship to the Messiah Jesus, who is our rabbi. But if you are on the journey with us, I invite you to be a disciple, not just a follower who likes a couple of you know, posts, but shows up and learns to radically reorient their life around this living rabbi. Jesus of Nazareth. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.